uh, two weeks ago, we uh, finished an overview of uh, John chapter 7, but in, in John chapter 7 and 8, John brings up some kind of big picture ideas, and so often we kind of skipped over some things that John was really trying to emphasize, and I was doing that intentionally because John brings them up multiple times from multiple perspectives in John chapter 7 and 8. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to get through the chapter first, and then I wanted to come back to some of the big ideas. And so my uh, title slide says that we're going to be starting chapter 8 today, and we hopefully will, God willing, but um, we're, we're going to spend probably the majority of our time looking at some of the ideas that are important in chapter 7. There's some additional ideas that we're probably going to examine as we go through chapter 8. So a little bit of a different approach to these chapters, but I, I think it makes sense. One of the central ideas in John chapter 7 is looking at how different groups wrestle with a very specific question. Who is Jesus Christ? And so maybe the, the clearest places where you see this in the chapter, not, certainly, not the only places certainly, would be verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. And then later in verse 20, the uh, crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And when we looked at that, uh, the most likely explanation for that is that what they, they're really meaning is that he's crazy. Um, he's not rational. Um, now that's going to intensify, and I, I think it, it does change tone from being crazy to actually being demon-possessed in chapter 8, which we'll get to. But um, you know, these, these might kind of sound familiar. I think we could kind of summarize these, that some of them think that he's a good man. Some of them uh, think that he's leading the people astray. Some of them think he's crazy. And you know, it's, this is still an issue today. In fact, if you ask people about Jesus Christ, few would openly say that they think he was insane. But, you know, I think a, a lot of people don't uh, give him the credit that he, he's due, and, and I think if they looked at his claims, that's probably what they would conclude. Um, so there's a lot of opinions about Jesus, and probably the most popular, and where I'm going to start, is with this idea that Jesus is a good teacher or a good person. Um, th this is probably the easiest one to completely dismiss. Uh, if we take the biblical accounts of Jesus seriously at least. There's a lot of reasons that if you look at the biblical accounts, Jesus simply cannot be a good person or a good teacher. Um, and most of you probably are familiar with C.S. Lewis' well-known quote, which we'll get to in a second. But let, let's go through what I think are the biggest issues with that. Jesus repeat, repeatedly claimed to be God, and that's especially true in the Gospel of John. But you don't need the Gospel of John for that. Uh, the, the other Gospels, I think the claims are, are very clear and very substantial. By the way, if you're ever talking to, to someone that is under the delusion that Jesus never claimed to be God, the people that person is listening to have probably completely dismissed the Gospel of John as not being historical at all. Uh, so the, the reason that I, I say that and the reason that kind of more liberal scholars would completely dismiss the Gospel of John is that, as we've seen, Jesus repeatedly and clearly claims to be God in a number of different ways in the Gospel of John. You simply can't look at, at John seriously and not come away with that conclusion, and so you have to dismiss it. Now, a, a good teacher simply could not make a claim like that uh, that, that isn't true. 
that would be a morally reprehensible claim to make if it weren't in fact true. So that I think is a, a really clear reason on its own. But another one, a little bit more subtle, but I think equally important, is that Jesus frequently accepts worship. Uh, people will worship him. And if you look through the rest of the Bible, uh, you know, anyone else who is a, a righteous individual always and emphatically refuses worship. They, they point to God. God alone should be worshiped. Don't worship me, worship God. Jesus accepts worship, and it would be grossly immoral for him to, to accept worship if he weren't, in fact, who he claims to be. Another one, a little bit subtle, but you know, I think equally important, is that Jesus repeatedly forgi forgives sinners. And more than that, he's forgiving people that have sinned against other people or sinned against God. So let's say that uh, someone were to take a sledgehammer to your car out in the parking lot right now. And they come in and say, oh, well, I was just feeling a little mad. I'm, I'm sorry. And they say, oh, it's, it's okay. I forgive you. Not my car. <laughs> it's your car. Um, I don't have the right to forgive that person. That is between you and them. And so it would be you, uh, absurd for Jesus to forgive a, a, a sinner who's sinned between other sinners, but it would be absurd and blasphemous for Jesus to, to forgive a sinner who's sinned against God. And Jesus does that. Uh, that. That is not something a good person or a good teacher can do. That is only something that God incarnate can do. And finally, Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. And again, that would be a completely immoral and terrible claim to make if it weren't true. So, you know, I, I know that most of you have probably heard this you know, very well-known quote by C.S. Lewis, but at least for me, it's one that I just can't hear enough. Uh, and C.S. Lewis just does such a good job of, of summarizing this. I am trying here to prevent the, uh, anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said, that sort of, this, and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not uh, come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so what we, we see in, in this really famous quote by, by Lewis is that the options that we have left if Jesus is not a great moral teacher is that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Uh, those are, are the only three ways that we can describe the person of Jesus Christ that's revealed in the Gospels. And so I'd like to go through the difficulties with liar and with lunatic uh, and, and take a little bit of time to do this because I, I think it is uh, you know, kind of helpful to remind ourselves how plausible the, the scriptures really are when it comes to Jesus Christ. The first difficulty with liar is that Jesus died for his claims. Um, if Jesus had been sane, he would have avoided that. There's no reason that, uh, that you know, someone that has false claims would 
would die for them, that there's no, nothing to be gained for that individual, and it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus had the opportunity to do a lot of things. Among them, he could have procured a military following. You know, people would have declared him uh, to be leader at multiple t points, declared, declared him to be king, and you know, given him a great deal of power. Jesus consistently steps aside. His mission has always been to go to the cross and not to you know, gain a military following, not to do a, a number of things that he could have done. And so again, that kind of raises the question, what's the point in saying things that aren't true if, if he's not going to get something out of it? Another thing to consider is that it would be very difficult, you know, living with you know, 12 disciples over the course of three years, ministering with them day in and day out, traveling together, to maintain a deception for, for that long. And what we see in the disciples are 11 individuals who are completely transformed by their experience with Jesus Christ. History, church tradition at least, tells us that uh, 10 of the 11 of the dis disciples, besides Judas, of course, uh, died for their faith. And John suffered you know, severe persecution. Uh, you know, church history tells us that he was boiled in oil at some point and somehow survived. He was exiled to Patmos. You know, he had a really rough go of it. Every single uh, disciple besides Judas the betrayer uh, lived their life you know, proclaiming what Jesus said to be true. And that's a, a really powerful testimony that they believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And it would be very difficult for a liar to pull that off. Another one is that secular historians have a very difficult time explaining the spread of early Christianity and, and the early church. If you look at the history of other religions, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this, and so if, if someone knows of some other exceptions, I would be interested in hearing about this, but most, if not all, other religions in the ancient world uh, spread with at least the active support of the state. Christianity is the only one that I can think of that not only spread, but spread very rapidly despite being actively suppressed by the state. You know, of course, we can look at the, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit as being part of that, and I think just the authenticity of the message it, itself being part of that, and I think the work of the Holy Spirit and the authenticity of the message aren't unrelated to each other. Um, but it, it, without that, it, it's exceedingly difficult to explain why it is that Christianity took off the way that it did in spite of persecution. You can certainly look at you know, examples of other religions that the state saw some advantage to and, and promoted. You can look at religions that spread by the sword, but I, I can't think of a religion that spread in the ancient world, at least, where you know, the state, I think, very carefully tried to control the religious views of the population and, and use them to the advantages of the state that uh, you took off the way that Christianity did. One of the ones that was new to me when I looked into this, but I thought was a, a really uh, powerful and compelling example, is the Jewish mindset. In that day, the Jews were the only major religion that were monotheistic. And in fact, it wasn't just that they were monotheists, they were very strict monotheists. That was perhaps the most important distinction of their beliefs to them. And 
so the idea of, of God incarnate, who's somehow separate from God the Father, and yet this, the, the same, we, we, we know the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, but that idea was a really difficult idea for the Jewish mindset in particular to accept. If you look at other re religions, other religions were polytheists, and you know, the idea of God being a person wasn't a big deal to them. In fact, you know, a lot of those religions, you know, whatever le leader would be considered God and would be forgotten in a generation or two. Um, but in, in Judaism, the idea of a human being being God was completely, not just absurd, but grossly offensive uh, to the Jewish people. We see that throughout the New Testament. What, what's remarkable about Jesus Christ is that not only is he the only significant religious figure that has you know, lasted more than a few generations who claims to be God and is believed by his followers to be God, but the people that he initially convinced were the, the group that were the most opposed to the idea of God incarnate, in, God in, in, in human flesh. That's something that is a, a rather remarkable thing that Jesus was able to accomplish, and I think the only way that you know, the, the Jews that composed the early church would have accepted God incarnate if, if they were presented with completely compelling and completely irrefutable evidence that Jesus was who he was in, in a way that caused them to go against their preconceptions against the idea of God in the flesh. Um, so, they, there's certainly a lot of very significant challenges to the idea that Jesus would have been a liar. Um, what about Jesus being a lunatic? You know, someone who actually believed that he's God in the flesh, even though he was a, a regular human being and just seriously mentally disturbed. Um, that, that's not a, a minor psychological issue. That's a very significant one. You know, C.S. Lewis in his quote says that that's kind of a, comparable to someone that actually thinks they're a poached egg, uh, to, to think that you really are God. And I, I think this one's even more difficult to, to rationalize with you know, the, the history of Christianity. You know, the, the idea that someone could be that seriously mentally disturbed and yet conduct a, a successful ministry for 12 years with you know, the, these 12 disciples that are completely transformed is you know, probably at, at least as difficult, if not more difficult, than the idea that Jesus is, is being dishonest about who he is. Um, you know, being able to successfully teach and, and draw crowds over that long of a period with such a delusional state is also very difficult to picture. If Jesus really did believe that he was God incarnate, not, not just um, saying it with the liar possibility, but really believing it with the lunatic possibility, in a culture that had very strict blasphemy laws, how could he avoid uh, being killed as a blasphemer after weeks? much less the, the three years of ministry that he, uh, he did have. So, we, we also see instances repeatedly through the Gospels where the religious leaders very carefully craft a question that is designed to trap Jesus. They have spent quite a while and they've come up with something they're really happy with. They think there is no way that we can ask this question that's not going to get Jesus into trouble. 
Every single time, Jesus comes up with a brilliant answer that keeps him out of trouble and yet answers the question well. And the idea that someone who is seriously mentally disturbed and really believes that they're God when they're not could do that is uh, very difficult to fathom. Um, Jesus is often pointed to, and I, I think quite rightly, as the individual that has had the greatest impact overall on human history. I think if you look at, you know, who has changed the course of human history the most, it, it would be Jesus Christ by a, a landslide. You can't come up with anyone that would be even close to the amount of impact on how history has unfolded that Jesus Christ had. If you think of other people who've had very significant impacts on history, there are a few that are seriously delusional. Now, there's, you know, great artists that are probably bipolar. There's, you you know, individuals that are narcissistic or, or have some psychological issues, but nothing, anything close to the severity of genuinely believing that you're God incarnate. I don't think you, the, the idea that the person that has had the most impact on human his, history was also this delusional is very difficult to picture. Um, and the, the miracles are another thing to point to. If, if Jesus really believed that he was God, you know, how, how would he have convinced people that he was able to do miracles? You know, someone that genuinely believes they're God is going to maybe say, oh, I can do a miracle and say something and just hope ex and expect it to happen. But the miracles actually happened in a way that convinced the crowd. That's not something that a lunatic would have been able to, uh, to, to pull off. So. These possibilities really don't work. Jesus could not be a good teacher. It's simply inconsistent with the testimony that we have in the Bible. He, he couldn't be a liar and he couldn't be a lunatic. The, the only possibility that we're, we're left with is that he is who that he claims he is. And I, I wanted to take the time to go through this, not because it's as important as some of the other things in, the, in this chapter, but because it, it has some importance and it, it is good to realize that our faith is a rational faith. It's not a, a faith that, you know, is a, a blind faith as, as faith is often characterized in popular culture. It's a, a faith that's reasonable. We don't believe in Jesus primarily because of uh, this being a reasonable faith. We believe him because we, we look at him and we see someone that can only be God. We, uh, one of the things that we're gonna get to as we get into chapter eight is that Jesus' testimony is self-authenticating, and that's the fundamental reason that we believe it, and that, that's a more substantial reason than this. But if it's true, it should also be reasonable, and thankfully, it, it is. So another idea from the chapter, we're gonna be switching gears pretty significantly here, is that uh, Jesus presents himself as the, the true water that kind of pr provides life and nourishment. Okay. And, oh, I'm going to have to skip a few slides because I, I had an outline of this and I forgot to put it up on this, this screen. So we're going to be looking at this idea of, being, of Jesus being water next. This isn't really connected to what we just did. It's just the, kind of the order that things came up in. And I'll, I'll read the text that we're going to focus on. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We're not going to completely unpack this. There's a great deal here, but I, I do want to look at some things that, that we see here. So Jesus is presenting himself as the source of living water. One of the things that we, we looked at when we looked at that previously is that there, you know, the, the text says, as the scripture has said, out, you know, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And if you look through the Old Testament, there isn't a quote that's particularly close to this. There are a number of quotes that are, are basically saying the same thing. So it's not as if Jesus is saying something that isn't found in the Old Testament. He's saying something that is found throughout the Old Testament, but he says it in a way that's worded differently than you would find it elsewhere in the Old Testament. You know, Jesus knew the scripture well. He certainly could, could have quoted a passage that would have said what he was saying just as well as, as what he said. What, he, what he's doing is he's summarizing all of these statements through the Old Testament. He's not saying, I'm fulfilling this prophecy or that prophecy. I'm fulfilling all of these prophecies. Uh, you, anywhere where you see the Old Testament talking about water nourishing the people of God, you, water being used as a metaphor for the life that God gives, that's pointing to me. So, one of the things that we wouldn't be aware of is the way that the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated. And there were several components in this that actually tie in very closely to what Jesus is talking about in these chapters. One of them is there's a water pouring ritual where priests will carry a large basin from the pool of Siloam and they'll carry it up to the altar and they'll, they'll pour it out. And this is looking on the water that you know, provided water to the people of God in the Exodus. If you'll remember, you know, Moses you know, leads the people you know, in, into the wilderness and after providing manna, they run out of water and uh, there's several incidents where God provides water, but one of them is where a rock is struck. And we're gonna look at that in more detail. But that ritual is looking back to that. And you know, evidently it was you know, a, a high point of the, the, the celebration and something that you know, devout Jews really looked forward to. Anyone that's familiar with agriculture probably understands the importance of water better than we do. To us, you know, we turn on a tap and there's water and you know, the main consideration and how much water to use is how high you want your water bill to be. But you know, to us, water is plentiful compared to, to our needs. But to an agricultural society in a somewhat arid climate, water is the limit to how much crops you can produce. If you don't get enough rain that year, your wheat crops are going to fail. If you're not willing to haul enough water for your vegetables, they die and you don't get a vegetable crop that year. So you know, one of the ways that we, we see this is that if you're flying across the country, once you pass the Rockies, you'll see these circular farms. It, that's an arid region where the rate limiting step, that's scientific term, the limit to the amount of crops that you can grow isn't the amount of land that you've got, it's the amount of water you can get. And so 
there's really no point to de designing an irrigation system that will irrigate a, a, a square field, even if you own a square field. You might as well just set up a, a simpler circular irrigation system, irrigate you know, a little over three quarters of the, the area in your field that's a circle and not worry about the rest because you can't afford the water or, you, or the water is available to irrigate the rest anyway. So that's the way that Jesus' audience would have thought about water. Water is the limit to how much crops you can produce. It's uh, the, the limit to life. If you fly over other arid landscapes, you'll be able to spot where a river is, not necessarily because you can see the water, but because you can see the trees that grow around it. That's where the water is in that landscape. And so that is the, the picture that we, we should have going into this. Water is life, not just the, the life that we need. The, you know, in the ancient world, there was more than enough water for people to drink. That, that wasn't a problem. You know, maybe they, they didn't plan ahead and they got really thirsty some days, uh, but you know, there, there, there was more than enough water for the people to drink themselves. It was you know, having enough water for agriculture that was the, the challenge. And so that hopefully helps this water pouring ritual to make a little bit more sense. It, the, the idea of this is that God abundantly providing what's needed for life. So let me just give you one of many examples I could go to in the Old Testament where we see this. This is Isaiah 44. Uh, <clears throat> but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you out of the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, uh, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on, on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and, bless, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up, spring up among the, the grass and like willows by flowing streams. So one of the things that is, is helpful in understanding the Old Testament, most of you are familiar with this, is that in Hebrew you, you'll often say the same thing twice but, but worded differently and kind of put in another way to, to add meaning and clarity. And, and verse 3 is one of thousands of examples of that that you'll see in the Old Testament. I will pour out my water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. So Isaiah is saying one statement. He's going to make the same statement a second time in the second half of the verse, just worded differently. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so with a little bit of, of Hebrew under your belt, you can see very clearly that Isaiah is equating you know, this picture of water with God giving his spirit in a, in a way that gives life to his people and, and spiritual life. So if we, if we want to dig a little bit deeper into these passages, I think a very good spot to start would be to look at some of the Old Testament passages that would have been read and would have been in the minds of the crowds during this water-pouring ritual. Uh, Jesus is probably saying this at about the same time. I, I think that's the most natural way to read John's account. And so we're going to look in a little bit of detail at Exodus 17, 1 through 6, and then Ezekiel 47, 1 through 11, and I, I think I'm probably going to skip Zechariah 14, 8. So we're going to uh, examine these more closely, and I, the one that we're going to put the most time into is the, the Exodus account. So 
if you think back to chapter 6, I, I know it's been a little while because we're, we're moving slowly, but when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, one of the ideas that John went out of his way to try to point to is that Jesus is the picture of what the, uh, the manna that was provided to God's people in the Exodus was. John does other things in that chapter to, to really point to the Exodus account. And so it isn't unreasonable to look for connections to Exodus here in, in chapters 7 and 8 also. And there are several that, that I think do exist, although they're a little bit harder to spot than the connections to Exodus in chapter 6. Prior to Exodus 17, I just want to kind of set the stage for where we are when we get to Exodus 17. God has powerfully delivered his people out of Egypt. The blood of an innocent lamb covered the houses from the judgment. Well, you know, the Egyptians were judged. Uh, God had powerfully parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to part on dry land and then drown the Egyptians that were following. And then, uh, despite not learning very much from this, or because they didn't learn very much from this, God's people grumbled when they were in the wilderness and they were about to die since they lacked food. And so God provides manna. And that kind of sets the stage for where we are in Exodus 17. I'm just going to go ahead and read the, the first seven verses. I'm, I'm not going to put them up. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt and, uh, to kill us and our children and, and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, or I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water, and sorry, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the, is the Lord among us or not? So God's people are where God guided them on a journey in the wilderness. They've seen God judge the Egyptians and they've seen him deliver them uh, with, uh, from that same judgment. They've seen God part the Red Sea and drown Pharaoh's army that had pursued them. Right now their bellies are... are comfortably full with manna that God has supernaturally provided in the middle of the desert. Um, they have really good reason to trust God, and they still don't. They, they do have a real physical need for water. This, this is an urgent need. You know, that, that's not the problem. The, the problem is that they don't take that need to God. Instead, they, gr gr they, they grumble, and they complain, and they quarrel. Those are words uh, used in the text. Um, what they deserve is judgment. So how does God respond? And let's look carefully at five and six. This, these are the, the really important verses here. God doesn't simply tell Moses, go grab some stick, any stick will do, and give that rock a good tap. 
Um, he could have. If, if, if he's simply interested in producing water, that would have worked just fine. In fact, just providing water would have, would have been fine. But he's very specific. He, he wants a specific staff, and he, he tells us a little bit about the history of, of that staff, not because that staff itself is important or magical, but because God wants to tell us something by the specific staff that's going to be used. The importance of that staff that, that's pointed to very clearly in the text is it's the staff of judgment. It's the staff that God used to initiate the judgment against the Egyptians. And the target of the judgment isn't the people. The, the people are ceaselessly inventive in finding new ways to richly deserve judgment. The target is God, because God is standing on the rock. Um, so what uh, the, the passage is, is saying is that, and what God is very careful to provide for us in this pas passage is a picture of how God is going to provide spiritual water to, to his people. Um, in order for his people to receive the life-giving water, it is God who must be struck, and God who the, is going to receive the judgment that the people deserve. It's what had to happen then for God's people to enjoy water, and it's what must happen for us as God's people to receive the spiritual water that Christ provides, the, the true water that Jesus is, is pointing to in this passage in John 7. Sometimes, I think we, we can look at you know, instances of the Old Testament pointing to Christ like this, and we can see a picture, but you, know, it, you, you always kind of wonder, is this real, or are we kind of seeing faces in clouds? In this particular instance, we don't have to wonder because the, Old or the New Testament has a, a really clear passage that, that says this that's, I think, worth just pointing to quickly. So in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 1 through 4, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so we, we know that this rock that was struck is, is a picture of Jesus Christ here because we have inspired uh, interpretation of that. Another passage that is important is uh, found in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, for those of you that are familiar with that book, is a challenging uh, text. We're towards the end of Ezekiel's prophecies, and there have been a lot of prophecies that are rather difficult, uh, you know, even today for us to, to unpack exactly what they mean. But one of the best known prophecies in Ezekiel is the water that comes from the temple. And so I'm gonna read uh, some verses. I'm not gonna put them up, but just kind of pay attention to the picture that Ezekiel is giving here. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And, and this temple, by the way, is one that has been described in great detail in Ezekiel. There are, are entire chapters that are full of details and measurements of this temple. And this temple has also never been built. Uh, we, we have reasonably good records of the dimensions of the temples that did exist in Jerusalem. And none of them are even close to the, the temple that's described in Ezekiel. Then he brought me to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east. 
and behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. Going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And he, get it, he, he measured a thousand and he, led, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And this would be a river that would be difficult for those that you know, live in you know, Israel to picture. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Jordan River, but we would probably call it a creek, uh, most of the year at least, not when it's in flood stage. But you know, it, it would be something that wouldn't be you know, uh, as large as this sort of river is, and that would be the largest river in the region. And most of the, those that lived in Israel would have lived you know, in the same region, and other than going to Jerusalem, they wouldn't uh, travel particularly far and have an opportunity to see real rivers. I mean, we're close to the Colorado, which is a, a river like this, but this river would be large uh, in their picture. I, I don't want to get into too many of the details of this temple, but most Reformed theologians don't see this as a prophecy of a specific physical temple that are, is going to exist someday in Israel, but th they instead see it as a picture of Christ. And uh, I think just in the interest of time, I, I don't want to uh, go any farther with that, but you, you can find good sermon series, and if you have questions, I'd be happy to try to point you to some things that would help you to understand that a little bit better. <clears throat> um, the text goes on to describe this river reaching the Dead Sea, and it turns large portions of the Dead Sea into fresh water, and you know, this Dead Sea kind of goes from being a, a lifeless body of water to being a vibrant body of water. There's many types of fish, and there's trees growing along this, the side of it. Uh, again, it's a picture of life coming from this end times temple, which I would argue is, is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, so that, that's another picture that we have out of the Old Testament. Now, regarding abundance of life, we ha have an unfortunate tendency, maybe subconsciously, when we think about abundance of life, to try to think about abundance of life in the same way that the world would think of abundance of life. You know, things like health and wealth and success. And that's not Jesus, that's not what the Bible is referring to when it's referring to an abundant life. True abundance is knowing Christ and enjoying you know, some degree of fellowship with Him. The more fellowship you enjoy with Jesus Christ, the more abundance you have. Um, you, true abundance would be worshiping with God's people. And so the, to the extent that we recognize and value what we have, what, what a great treasure we have in Jesus Christ, um, then we have true abundance of, of life uh, from, from that, not from the, the things in this world. Let me kind of look at one more question from this. I'll try to do this quickly so I don't go over too long, but I might be a few minutes over. One of the things that kind of stands out and hopefully you know, makes us scratch our head and try to think about is why it is that the religious leaders in particular are so much more hostile to Jesus Christ and they're so much more vehement in their rejection of Him in comparison to kind of the average people. 
Now, naively, you would expect the opposite. You know, we are hard on the religious leaders because they're the villains in, in this story, and we, we think of them as the worst, and, and they are. But from a human perspective, remember, this is a group that have put more effort into trying to, to live by the revealed truth of the Scriptures than you know, anyone else that would have been present there. You know, they spent their lives studying the Scriptures. They you know, came up with a, a system of rules you know, in an attempt to obey the law that God revealed. You know, in, in terms of effort, in terms of intellect and ability, you know, that, that they're the, the best of the best. Um, shouldn't they have been the first to recognize the validity of Jesus' claims? Why are they instead the, the ones that respond the worst when they're trying the hardest? Um, so I think if, if we look at the Apostle Paul, we, we get a really good picture of one of these individuals. Uh, Paul was one, uh, you know, on his way to becoming you know, kind of towards the top of the, the religious leaders. He would have been a generation behind these, but uh, you know, he, he was on the same path to that. And if you look back on his many accomplishments in rising to the top of Judaism, l listen to what he says in Philippians 3. I lost my spot really good. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, let's not worry about it. Look out for those dogs, um, those evildoers, uh, those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself has, have reason for such uh, confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to, to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. The key phrase in this section, Paul says it three times. Uh, is put no confidence in the flesh. And you know, Paul has a really impressive list of uh, accomplishments, you know, of, you know, the effort that he was putting forward that was more effort than other people to do what he thought was right in God's eyes. And he considers that rubbish, which is a very gentle translation of the Greek. Uh, Tim has pointed this out a couple weeks ago. You know, the Greek politely would translate as human excrement, but that we have, I think, closer words in English that I'm not going to use that I think, as near as I can tell, are, are functionally identical to the Greek word that, that Paul uses. Um, you know, Christ didn't come to take our, our efforts to justify ourselves and, and merit some sort of favor to God and add to those efforts so that we could reach some sort of a standard. Christ came to completely demolish any hope that we have of human achievement amounting to anything at all. Human achievement is rubbish. Um, it isn't in intelligence, it's not education or devout religious practice that are problems. Those are good things. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful you know, that I was able to you know, 
you know, enjoy a good education. I'm, I'm glad for it. It's a good thing, and I would encourage those of you that have uh, you know, an opportunity for education to pursue that. Uh, the problem isn't education, or the problem isn't intelligence or religious effort. The problem's us. And especially, it, it's any confidence that we place in anything about us. The leaders saw themselves as better than the crowd because by, by human judgment, they were. They were more educated. They were smarter. They were more uh, externally righteous than the crowds. And again, those aren't bad things in and of themselves, but they thought this status somehow was impressive to God. God isn't slightly impressed by the best that humanity can do. Instead, any confidence that they had in themselves and their efforts was actually a barrier to recognizing their need for Christ. And the more performance and the more merit we have, the more that we have to give up to see our need for Christ and to come to Him as our only hope of salvation. To understand Jesus' message is to see one as one actually is before God, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The crowds, composed of people with so-so credentials by this world's standards, had the advantage that they had less to abandon in order to, to embrace Christ. The leaders had to see that everything that they had devoted their lives to was less than worthy and only a, a hindrance to Christ. And they didn't want to see this. Not, not only did they not want to see it, but they actively suppressed it. They actively fought to suppress that truth. So maybe, maybe I'm overemphasizing here, but it's not education or intelligence or devout living that are bad, but it's any degree of confidence that we have in those things and any delusion that any of those things amounts to anything before God that's a, a hindrance. The overplaced confidence in the flesh that the religious leaders had came under direct attack by Christ in, in these chapters. And as we move into chapter 8, the attacks are going to get more and more forceful and more and more offensive. They, uh, they built up confidence in the flesh by developing a system of, of rules that could be kept. And they placed their confidence increasingly in the keeping of this system of rules that they had put on top of the law. So Christ comes and he obeys the law perfectly, not as a system of rules, um, but in, in real authentic obedience. And he proclaims the truth that no amount of self-righteousness can justify sinners before God. They could not stand to have this supposed righteousness they had, that they had worked for so hard exposed for what it is, human excrement. And their response was a plot to kill Jesus, which shows just how effective their human efforts were. You know, shine a little bit of light on them, and what you know, their, their human efforts actually are just becomes immediately apparent. <clears throat> had they been capable of right judgment, they could only conclude that the response to Jesus was proof of their, their sin and their need for forgiveness, but they're completely blind to that. Okay. So that actually kind of takes us to the end of a section. I, I know I'm over by about four minutes, uh, but I didn't quite actually get into chapter eight. We're gonna start chapter eight uh, in, at verse 12 next time. But let me say a really quick prayer and we'll wrap up. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us that you know, no amount of, of effort could bring us to you, but you have made it possible for us to come to you through Jesus Christ. 
thank you for giving us enough light to see that and that we have come to you through the gospel and that we have abandoned our efforts to, to please you and we rest solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.